Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and my special guest today is Vance Ginn, who is the Chief Economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and is the Policy Director for the Foundation's Alliance for Opportunity Campaign. Vance's work at the Foundation includes producing high-quality research with free market reforms on multiple policy areas. He earned his doctorate in economics and a BAA in economics and accounting from Texas Tech University, and he lives in Round Rock, Texas. Vance, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you actually live pretty close to a lot of people who are involved in the Libertarian Christian Institute, although we're not based in Round Rock, but we have several people that live near you. We'll have to talk off air and you can maybe get connected. Yeah, that would be great. It's a great place to be, good place to raise a family. So it's not in, in Austin proper. It's right outside, just north of Austin. So it's, it's a great place. Yeah. So is the Texas Public Policy Foundation based out of there? It's in Austin. Yeah, okay. We're two blocks south of the Capitol. So we're dead downtown uh, Austin at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about yourself. You know, your bio that I read just now is a little brief. And, and I want to give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit and what some of your experience was. I mean, you've, you've been in D.C., you've been in Texas. Tell us a little bit about, your, about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas. So I've, I'm a Texan <laughs> by birth and continue to stay here. Even as we have a lot of people flooding in from other states, I was born and raised in Texas. I had an opportunity to go to a small private school from kindergarten to second grade, public school from third grade to sixth grade, and then homeschool, a Becca video Christian homeschool actually out of Pensacola, Florida from seventh grade through 12th grade. So I'm a huge advocate for school choice. That actually, that's what I did. It was just the really? last two years of high school though. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a great experience. And, you know, I think of things in, um, through an institutional perspective and the lens of the worldview with which we see the world. And those institutions helped to form my way of thinking. I mean, it was a great opportunity to do so, even though we didn't come from a lot of money, very low income for most of my life. My parents divorced when I was five. So it's a single mother household. So we had a lot of challenges, but we dealt with those opportunities along the way that we were given to overcome those challenges. Hmm. You know, in my late teen years, I got I was in a rock band for a number of years. I'm a drummer <laughs> and uh, started living a life that was not heading in a good direction. It was in a serious car accident when I was 20, where I was life flighted to Herman Hospital in Houston. And it's, it gave me time to think and really pray about the future of my life and where it was heading. I really feel like my calling was to help people. And uh, my hashtag now is let people prosper. And a way to do that, the tool that I was 
kind of given. And besides, you know, the Bible, of course, is the first and foremost, but also economics. <laughs> I thought it was just a good way to explain how the world works. It made a lot of sense to me. And so as a first generation college student, I went to a junior college, then went to Texas Tech University, did a double major in economics and accounting, double minor in political science and mathematics. So I was kind of all over the place. Just kind of loved it all. Uh, and then my mentor at the time, he said, you know what, you should try to get a PhD in economics. Uh, I was fine with getting a bachelor's, but he said, you should check it out because, you know, you really seem interested in it. And I did it at Texas Tech University, got a PhD in economics there. I went and taught at Sam Houston State University. It's in Huntsville, Texas, right near Houston. Taught there, principles of macro, principles of micro for a couple of years. And then I really felt compelled to go into the public policy space. I enjoy doing research and teaching, have a passion for it. But, you know, you write these academic papers and these journals that very few people are going to read if you're lucky. <laughs> and I felt that that wasn't the best route for me. So I started looking at public policy places and I had done an internship at a small place called the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin, Texas. And I really liked the work that they were doing. They had a good mission. You know, it's free enterprise, personal responsibility and liberty where there are three key objectives and from a free market perspective. And it wasn't just about, you know, doing these research papers and white papers, but it was about being a do tank, not just a think tank where we're going up to the Capitol and explaining to legislative staff and others and testifying before committees and saying, look, this is what you should be doing instead from a free market perspective. And that really drew me in. And so I started here in 2013 at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, worked on a lot of different areas, budgets, taxes, spending, education, healthcare policy, really got a good view of a lot of things. And then in 2019, I got a call from the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House. And they said, you know, are you looking for a job? And I told him, well, you know what? I'm a free market economist. so I'm always on the market. <laughs> you never know which way God's going to have you going next. You know, I applied for the position. And the next thing I know, me and my family, I had two boys at the time. Now I have three kids. I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, two boys, and a two-week-old daughter. <laughs> so uh, we've been blessed from that perspective. And But we're we're moving to McLean, Virginia, to where my position was the Associate Director for Economic Policy at the Office of Management and Budget at the Executive Office of the President. <laughs> Shorter, I was basically the Chief Economist at the White House's OMB. So it was the, that is where the budget is created for the President, which the President has to issue his own budget every year in the first February of every year. So my position was to look at the economic assumptions that went into Trump's budget for fiscal year 21, which ended up being his last budget. And, you know, we found $4.6 trillion in savings in that budget. Uh, we still didn't balance the budget until after 15 years. So that was way too far. But we were trying to help get to that place over time. And then I was there for a year right whenever COVID really got started and we were ready to move back to Texas the lack of liberty and other things that were up in the Virginia space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we really wanted to be close around family and back in Texas. And so we moved back here and I'm now the chief economist at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, again, back here as of May of 2020. So back for about two years now. Um, and I've been working on this, the Alliance for Opportunity, which is a poverty relief program that we're doing. It's a multiple state effort between Texas, here at TVPF, Louisiana with the Pelican Institute, another think tank there, and the Georgia Center for Opportunity in Georgia to really come up with these poverty relief areas from a institutional, nonprofit, as free market approach as we can be to really help people have self-sufficiency 
which I think is a key part of the Christian belief in hard work and values and, you know, making sure that we have those sort of purpose-driven life, if you will, not just from a Christian perspective, but also given the ability to give back to society in a productive way. And so it's been a great path, Doug, and, and a journey. It's had its ups and downs like many, and I'm just blessed to have been here today to be with you and uh, kind of go over some of these issues we've been working on. Yeah, well, I appreciate all of that. And of course, I'm sure our listeners as well as I, and I'm sure you've heard this question a lot when you're up in DC, like, what was it like? And I don't want to go too far because this conversation isn't meant to be about this. But what was it like at the OMB with respect to like what you produced and when you like evaluated the assumptions given their budget, like was this something that like you sat down with Donald Trump at a table and were sort of giving an executive summary to him or to his advisors? Like what of your materials and product, if you will, made its way to the president's ear? Yeah, good question. So with my role as chief economist at OMB, which is a 535-person agency within the executive office, right? I was on senior staff those there, so I was one of seven. And the director, who was Russ Vogt, he was the acting director at the time, then he was confirmed to be the director. He was the main person that I was conveying my research and my efforts to. And then he would go to the meetings with President Trump and the cabinet to have the discussions about different budget items or tax reform Mm -hmm, items or anything mm -hmm. along those lines. So I didn't meet directly with the president in that capacity, but my work certainly went to him and was being reviewed by you know President Trump, the National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, which was Kevin Hassett, and then Tomas Philipson. They would all be some of the ones where my research would go up to and then ultimately be conveyed to the president. And then however they want to take that thereafter uh, was kind of up to them. But I did feel like I had a good amount of input in the process when it came to economic issues. The $6 trillion you say you were able to propose a savings or something like that. I forget how you worded it. 4.6. Don't give me too much credit. (laughs) Well, I mean, hey, that's it. Those numbers are almost the same. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Even though I know that's completely not true. Um, What what does that kind of thing come from? Is this more like, hey, we found this. We think you can cut this without adverse effects on people's lives. Or like, what does that even look like? A lot of it is just slowing the growth of the budget at large. So mm-hmm. when I say $4.6 trillion in savings, that's compared to, I think it was like an $8 trillion increase over time that we were going to be spending. And instead of $8 trillion, it was closer to 3.4. You know what I mean? So there's Got still it. growth in the budget, but there are savings that you're, because it's a 10-year budget window, yeah. which is the president's budget. And it's a lot of times what the Congressional Budget Office looks like as well which always bothers me a little bit, to be honest. I mean, whenever I hear of savings, I'm thinking we're cutting the budget. Like, come on. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but that, that's usually not what politicians are saying. It's like we're spending less than we otherwise would, which is something. But, yeah. you know, we were trying to grow the budget more like within the average taxpayer's ability to pay for government, which a measure of that is population growth and inflation. Yeah. And by just slowing the growth of the budget, you can get on a better trajectory, you know, one thing that we looked that I've been looking at in my research is over the last 20 years, the federal budget has increased the deficit. So the national debt has increased by almost $20 trillion, $20 trillion over 20 years, about a trillion dollars a year. Well, if we were to just match population growth and inflation on the spending side and let revenue come in the way that it did, we would have had a $2.8 trillion surplus. 
So it's a $23 trillion swing by mm. just limiting the growth of the budget. And so that was one of our big areas. But that goes into discretionary spending, like what they Congress has the most control over, really diving into that. Yeah. Even looking at some of the, you know, quote unquote, entitlements, making some key reforms that's not necessarily cutting benefits, but it's saying, let's make it to where it's going to be solvent over time yeah. <laughs> for these major programs like Social Security and Medicare where you add transparency and other items to Medicare so we can actually know what we're paying for could allow for more market fundamentals of the price system mm -hmm. to indicate whether you know people should buy or consume compared to the system we have today that's very opaque. So some of them were minor reforms, but they turn out to be and they compound to be very large effects on the budget over time. Yeah, ounce in the morning is a pound at night when you're hiking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Does that budget include the military budget over the last 20 years? Or is that just domestic? It does. It does, okay. Yeah, that was the entire budget of the last 20 years. Yeah, well, look how that went. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you sharing that that content and just sort of a, a little peek into that, you know, what's happening there. I mean, I think the Democrats would probably look at what you did and say, oh, look, Vance was uh, reducing government spending, even though all you were doing was slowing the increase, yes. <laughs> which is their, you know, Orwellian way of talking about budgets. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times what Congress does is they'll get the president's budget, which is part of what Congress passed in the law saying the president must issue a budget. But then what do they would do with it when they get it is basically throw it in the trash, you know, because yeah. they have their own priorities. Yeah. They have their own lobbyists and interest groups and rent seekers that they've got to be able to appease throughout the process. And so even had COVID not hit the way it, when it did, which was right around the time that we issued our budget, because that was February of 2020. Yeah, COVID yeah. really got going, you know, March of 2020. And so then that everything that we had went through just got overlooked to where we then ran a $3 trillion mm -hmm. deficit that fiscal year. And so things change up really quickly. Yeah, man, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to sort of make those kinds of proposals and so forth. So yeah, I appreciate that. You are now back in Round Rock and uh, you're at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and their mission is promote and defend liberty, personal responsibility, and free enterprise in Texas and the nation by educating and affecting policymakers in the Texas public policy debate. And there's a little bit more that I didn't read, but who reads the policy papers exactly? Because I've never really read a true policy paper. I know that there's a lot of input by some libertarian think tanks. There's a lot of input by other academics. And I often wonder, like, who's behind these people, you know, especially on the left, and, you know, you're not there, but yeah. who's behind all these, you know, ideas that get actually pushed? And, well, I'll answer that, and then I kind of have a follow-up that makes sense to follow up with. So, at least in our position, I mean, we take a number of things under consideration. I mean, one of the things that I do as chief economist at Textbook Policy Foundation is to make sure that we have sound, high-quality, in many sense, academic-based research that is going to be our driving force before we even get to any sort of outreach efforts or anything else through the process. And that's looking at the literature review of academic papers. So there is part of that process that goes on. But it's also a part of what we do here, at least at TUPF, is do polling, right, to see what people are saying about a particular topic. So if it's on spending restraint, which we're very much advocates of as fiscal hawks, 
what do people think about spending? And whenever you do polling on spending across the state of Texas, people will usually say that we should be spending less or slowing the growth rate of spending. But then you start talking to them about specific areas like education or healthcare. Well, when you talk about that, people don't want to cut as much. So it kind of changes some of the narrative. One of the things that I think is so important that it sets aside the academic community or sets apart the academic community with the public policy community is that we've got to do it in a way that are trying to not only educate people about particular topics, but in some sense, sway them a certain way to maybe see it in a perspective that they hadn't seen it before, which I think is so important, of course, from an economic perspective, because we're looking at trade-offs. So we need to give the trade-offs of, okay, we're spending more on education, but you're not getting the benefits, the outcomes that you want of improving schools, improving education and everything else, then maybe you don't need to be spending as much money. <laughs> the, yeah. the amount of spending is not highly correlated <laughs> with the outcomes that you have. And so let's reevaluate what's going on. And I think what who are the people that we're really trying to get to read our papers, of course, are going to be legislators and their staff. That's a big part of our target audience because we consider ourselves not just a think tank that are writing white papers, but a do tank, which are going to turn these policy ideas into a reality to hopefully improve people's lives, to increase liberty and freedom and all those things, right? Um, And if we're not doing that, then we're not being successful. And that goes all the way up to the top of our board where that's the key types of items that they're looking at for us being successful is whether or not we are moving the needle in getting things accomplished with bills being passed, right? Or defining the narrative in a way that is heading in that direction. That's ultimately what we're trying to do, which Mm -hmm. means that I'm meeting with uh, legislative staff. I'm meeting with members. I'm taking my white papers directly down the road here. We're two blocks south of the Capitol here in Austin. So I'm, I'm walking over there to meet with folks sending information out there. I'm testifying before hearings. Last session here in Texas, we're blessed to only meet every two years for 140 days. So last session, I testified 37 times before different committees to make the case for freedom, to make the case for impeding prosperity. You know, my hashtag on Twitter is uh, let people prosper. That's really what I'm trying to do. I believe that's what my mm-hmm. calling is. So I'm always trying to push in that, that direction. And so I think from that perspective, that's really what TBPF and a lot of other think tanks are doing. But I think in some sense sets us apart at TBPF to where we're really boots on the ground to make a difference in the public policy arena. So I have a question about the kind of data that you might report on. And this has been a difficult thing for me to sort of wrap my head around as I engage with mostly people on the left who have data about this or that. And it has to do with how granular the data is, data are, when you look at things. So for example, and I'm just going to make up a potential like story here, and you can kind of speak to it as a response. I can imagine that, you know, you use education as an example, and it's pretty obvious that more money doesn't necessarily turn into better educational outcomes. And so you could look at the whole state of Texas or any particular state or even the country and say, look, we're spending 137% more year over year or over the course of 10 years on public education and we're actually seeing lower test scores or whatever. Are there places though, maybe there are certain districts, certain pockets of the state or maybe even the nation where you do see an increase in spending that has succeeded. Now, I'm not asking more particularly about that particular one, although if you have an answer for that, that'd be really great. Because my guess is that a lot of people on the left will come back with things like, well, in this particular area, 
they actually did do this and do that and so forth. And it actually disproves that we'll always waste money in education or whatever the situation may be. So how granular does the data get? Because it seems to me like sometimes these arguments over whether something is effective as it could be or whether or not the money is going to a good cause or whatever, you know, those aren't debated, but it's the outcomes themselves are often debated. So I don't know if there's a whole bunch of questions and ways for you to respond in there. I'll let you, I'll let you do that. No, I mean, there's a lot of good things to think about there. And you're, you're right. The level of granularity on the data can be missing. There can be some omission there, which does make it difficult to kind of take a deeper dive into, okay, what exactly is working, what are not. I mean, a lot of times we look at it from a macro perspective and say, okay, this is how much we spend on education and across the state of Texas. And then here are the grades that are given by district. And if there's not a strong relationship, then we say, okay, well, that they must not be working. And I, I think it's mm-hmm. cool to look at that to a certain extent, but we do need to try to drill down some. And that's one reason why we look at it from not just a macro level of, I think it's around $60 billion a year that we spend across the state for education, for government schools, but how much do we spend per student? And that amount at the public schools here in Texas are around a little around $12,000 per year. They're up a little bit now with all the COVID money that's coming in. But historically, over the last three or four years, it's been right around $12,000 per student. Then when you think about the $12,000 per student now, we can see how much that's grown over time. That's more of a micro level basis, right? And that mm-hmm. has increased pretty substantially, you know, even in real terms, there is continued increase, meaning an an inflation adjusted and per student adjusted, because these are all per student amounts, the $12,000. And you still see that there's not the same increase in outcomes. We do a grading scale here in Texas, A through F for these school districts, and you're not seeing improvements. You can also look at it from the improvements uh, or the how people are doing in math right? And that's not improving. In fact, it's going down right now. Mm -hmm. COVID had a huge hit on that when a lot of these schools shut down. We could talk about that. But, you know, saying those things aside, because those are more new, maybe more nuanced, even over time, you're not seeing the dollar for dollar increase in per student is increasing the quality, the outcomes that we're, we're getting. And so that really puts a question mark on why. And so I do think what we're seeing, though, are some Mm. particular school districts are starting to see better outcomes, like in Dallas, where Dallas has put in a different perspective of policy, where they said, you know what, we're going to start paying teachers more on the quality of their teaching. Imagine that on the productivity of their teaching and better teachers are going to be paid more. So that way there are incentives in place for teachers to improve the quality of their education compared to the monopoly sort of situation that you have with most government schools where there's not that incentive in place because there's a salary schedule that's set by you know the state of Texas instead of there being more flexibility at the local level. And I think that would be one good example, you know, Doug, of looking at more of the micro level compared to macro. So it's out there, but you do have to dig a little bit more. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that that actually is being done because, you know, I live at the level of not data, but more principles and, you know, sort of ethics in a way that I don't know how granular is necessary. And so it's really good to hear that you're actually doing that kind of work where where things are, you know, being investigated when you need to sort of dig in a little bit further. What are some of the issues you get the most passionate about? I mean, you you seem passionate about what you're talking about right now. And we just talked yeah. about education and, you know, let people prosper is really, really important to you. Are there any particular ways in which that is manifest for you? Yeah, I mean, growing up, like I said earlier, for a single parent household, my mom kind of struggling. She 
she didn't graduate high school. Um, and that, that was burdensome. Uh, my dad had uh, epilepsy. He died in 2011 from SUDEP. It's called Sudden Unexpected Death and Epilepsy. And so he lived on Social Security, right? His life. And so I, we dealt with a lot of poverty and low income. And so one of the things that's been near and near, dear to my heart and really kind of got me into economics was how to overcome some of those challenges and make sure that there are many opportunities as possible. You know, I don't think that there needs to be equal outcomes because when you have equal outcomes, like socialism at least tries to advance and, <laughs> and says they're trying to do, the problem, even if you get to the equalized outcome, is that everybody's mediocre. And there's no, there's no incentive for people to advance and push the bar forward for innovation and new technologies and people to really meet their full potential, their God-given potential. And within a form of capitalism, which we have here, which we could get into whether or not we're fully capitalism, which we're not. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to get into that. We all, we both, you and I both agree. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> I, I actually, there, I don't think more, there's any. I, I think we're more socialist than capitalist in so many ways. If you think about yeah. the commanding heights of the economy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. I'll let you yeah. on your Okay, passes. good. Good. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, that really got me into what's the government spending money on and then how much money they're taking out of the economy with taxes. So fiscal policy has always been kind of near and dear to my heart. It's a lot of the work that I've done at the Textbook Policy Foundation. As far as the conservative Texas budget is what we've called it, where the budget shouldn't grow by more than population growth plus inflation. It's just a good measure of the average taxpayer's ability to pay. And I've been working on that for four sessions until last year in 2021, the legislature passed the strongest spending limit in the nation that's based on much of what we had been working on for a number of years. And so that starts to at least slow the growth. That should, that's a maximum. I would love for them to be shrinking the budget because it's already too large, but at least there's some rules in place. I'm a big fan of looking at rules over discretion when it comes to the institutions like Congress or state legislatures, and also monetary policy rules, because I don't trust them to make good decisions. <laughs> as but given all the other rent seeking that goes on from like the work of James Buchanan mm -hmm. and public choice economics, which is another I'm a huge fan of his. These are all things that we need to have in mind. And when you start limiting the size and scope of government, which means the growth of government, that allows you to focus on the private sector. The private sector is where you have more job creation is being made and all those other things. The, the government is a drain on that. So we need to make sure that whatever government's doing has, has to be limited. And I'm a classical liberal. And so I, you know, I believe that it should only be maybe a few things like natural defense, a justice system that can uphold private property rights and very few public goods that are out there. And I really think that that supports the flourishing of people. And so when you limit government spending, that helps to keep taxes lower than they otherwise would, more money in people's pockets, and therefore, hopefully, a more robust civil society as in a stronger institution so people can help each other. I mean, I think that's a big part of my Christian faith, right, is that Jesus said to help the poor. And I think that we should. I don't think it's that meant from a government perspective of a redistribution of people taking, you know, government taking resources to distribute it somewhere else, but us as individuals through donations and helping our fellow neighbor. That also is what brought us to this newer initiative that we just started called the Alliance for Opportunity and our poverty relief efforts of reducing barriers to work, like occupational licensing and all the costs that come with that, or not having a driver's license whenever after you're formally incarcerated. That makes it more difficult to get a job. And so we're looking at ways to speed that up. Safety net reform, when you're looking at TANF, 
temporary assistance to needy families. You know, only about 50% of the dollars that we're trying to allocate to needy people go to them because of there's a lot of costs that go to technology for that program and also administrative costs and the bloat that's within there. And then the last one of that is improving our workforce development. Um, not just focusing on a pathway to four-year degrees, but also looking at career and technical education and look at other pathways for people because there's this idea of what's called the success sequence where if you graduate high school, you get a full-time job, you get married before you have kids, in that order, you're 97% chance to not be in poverty. Now, it's correlation, not causation there. We got to keep mindful of that. But those are key, a key pathway to getting people out of poverty. And we need more of that instead of a, mm. a safety net system that just throws more money at the problem because they misunderstand poverty. They think it's a material or lack of material things, but it's a mindset. And it has to be have a more holistic approach. And so by, by reining in the size and scope of government with the more fiscal policy side of things and putting more rules in place and then focusing on a more holistic way that includes civil society <laughs> and individuals, I think we can bring people better out of poverty for the longer term instead of just short-term fixes here and there. So that's kind of where I come from. It makes me most passionate, even though I get passionate about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. I know that one of the things that we were we decided before we got on here that we'd talk about is the current economic situation and you know everywhere in the news the Putin curse of inflation that was a joke <laughs> is being yeah. talked about other than inflation are there things that are sort of influencing the current economic situation in people's lives that many people may not actually know or pay attention to because maybe the media isn't covering it. Maybe it's actually not as strong as inflation, so it kind of gets overshadowed. So what's going on in the economy right now that's affecting us all? Yeah, great question. I think there are two things that I would put on this. I mean, inflation is a thing that we can see, but it goes back to maybe the micro versus macro that we were talking about earlier within the education system. That's more of a macro thing that you're seeing all around you, all these prices are going up. But what is driving that inflation? And so you got to look under the hood <laughs> and say, what is causing this to happen? Well, you know, inflation, one of my favorite economists, Milton Friedman, um, inflation is always and everywhere a, a monetary phenomenon. And so it's really driven by the Federal Reserve 
printing too much money. I mean, another classic way of defining inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And so I think that's a great way to look at it. And inflation, it's running around 8% plus right now. We could even see it go a little bit higher. But that's the general level of prices that you're looking at how much they go up. If you looked at just the increase in the money supply over the last year, I mean, you're north of 30%, almost 40% increase. Mm, And so that has got to be conveyed throughout our um, transfer, throughout all of our prices at some point in the future without a major slowdown in the money creation and therefore a recession, which could be on the horizon, right? And what's driving the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, right? You keep digging. (laughs) And that's where you find Congress and the excessive spending that's happening from the fiscal side of things. I think that we often over time overlook what Congress is doing and blame it on the Fed, or people blame it on the Fed and not look at what Congress is doing. I think we've got to look at both of them at the same time, because if the Fed didn't have all this ammunition in the form of treasury debt, the debt that's issued by Congress is overspending. We don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. So their overspending is leading to massive debt, which is around, you know, north of $30 trillion now from a 20, $21 trillion economy. So we have much more in debt that we now do as an economy. It's just massive. And so what I think from the fiscal side of things, leading to more debt has given the Federal Reserve more ammunition. And then that's brought about all this um, inflation, and which is a major problem. And so I put all those pieces together. And I think that's a very important part of that. And the second thing, just real quick, is that I'm really concerned about our labor market. If you look at the overall numbers, again, on the macro level, the unemployment rate, I believe nationally right now is 3.6%, which is historically very low. I don't understand how it's that low. Like, yeah. there are so many people asking for jobs in my area. Yeah. Like, I really, I don't want to be like the, I don't know anybody who voted for Nixon kind of guy. But like, yeah. like seriously, I don't know how that's three point. Like, how is it that low? That's, ex- that's like, that's full employment, isn't it? Yes. Isn't that the, what, I don't know what the number is for official full employment. Yeah, there's different measures that are out there because full employment is just an estimate. But let's say it's 5% or 4.5%. It still would be well below <laughs> what many economists would consider to be full employment. So what's going on there with that? If that's macro, like what's the micro situation look like? Yeah, so it's making us scratch our head quite a bit. Um, but on the micro level, you've got to look at a, a more holistic approach, using that term again, using a holistic approach about the labor market is that we have about you know 3 million fewer people that are in the labor force compared to February of 2020 before the shutdowns you know, and um, and with COVID and everything else going on. So a lot of people have chosen not to go back into the labor force. And that's for a number of reasons. But but that influences the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate is just the number of unemployed divided by the labor force, right? And so if people are dropping out of the labor force, you have fewer people that are unemployed and fewer people that are in the labor force. So the numerator and the denominator go down, which means the overall ratio goes down. So when people are dropping out, you're actually seeing a lower unemployment rate, which really may not be indicative of a stronger labor market or a healthy situation for an economy. Right. If five out of five people went back to work and that's all that worked, we have 100% employment. But if everyone else is not part of that number, then clearly we have a problem. That's exactly, that's a great way to put it. To be highly exaggerated, but yeah. No, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And so some of them who have dropped out have been those that are retired, right? We have the baby boomers. A lot of them are retiring every day. So that's a bit, that's going to be a part of it. You had some people that dropped out for health reasons, right? They may have had some 
minor issues that were affecting them before COVID and they really kind of pushed it off, but then it became more severe or they thought, mm-hmm. you know what, let me go ahead and apply for social security disability insurance and get on that. So you had more people that, that did that for a while, but then you have people that I think are still feel fearful of going back. And this is my other key point. So we have an overspending problem would be my number one point earlier. But the number two point is I think we have a psych, a psyche problem of, of, of work and, and labor that may take a while to overcome. I mean, this whole issue of, of COVID and people being scared to go to work for whatever reason, and the basically state governors shutting down their economies um, is going to have lasting effects. And I think this is one of them to where people are, their mindset has changed about work. They stayed home for a long time. They oftentimes were getting paid more to stay home through unemployment benefits, Medicaid, whatever the benefits were that they were getting. And that changed their psyche, their outlook, their view of work at at large. And so some people don't want to go back unless it's remote. Well, not all jobs are going to be remote work. Um, And so that can be a hindrance. Um, There were also a a situation where there were all these quote unquote stimulus checks. I don't don't call them stimulus checks because government can't stimulate anything other than more government. Um, But they call them (laughs) stimulus checks. But that also handed out out more money to people. And then we had child tax credits all the end of last year for the last six months. So people were getting more and more money without being connected to work and connection to a purpose. And I'm worried, concerned that we've lost that purpose-driven aspect to people's lives, which means that we could have a slower economic growth in the future, which is a macro issue. From a micro issue, I'm concerned that this is going to hurt people and hurt families because they're not going to have the means with which to support themselves. Well, we'll then have to turn more to government over time and meaning higher taxes and slower growth and everything that comes along with it. So those are kind of the two big issues there. How do you respond to people who say that economic growth is not, you know, the most important thing? You know, especially Christians who are thinking more along the lines of maybe social justice and realizing that, you know, and, and sustainability and those kinds of things. And I know those words are very loaded, but mm-hmm. there there does seem to be some wisdom in recognizing that economic growth for its own sake isn't inherently positive. Um, it is most likely that we've observed that economic growth has created a positive environment for all. But is there is there any evidence that maybe a slower growing economy is actually more stable and less prone to fluctuations in disruptions? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that slower growing economy is beneficial to the economy at large because as you have a faster growing economy, and even though I, I'll be the first to say that GDP is not accurately measured, <laughs> um, there would be great if we had more things that we can measure. Uh, but just using it as an example, as a good benchmark over time, you know, when you look at faster growth periods, that's been associated with greater prosperity. People are doing better. People, poverty rates are going down. More people are employed. So then employment rate is going down as well. I mean, one of the things I would mention about you know, just the, the Trump administration um, in 2019 was that you had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. I would argue there was too much spending by Congress and, and, and things of that nature. So we had massive deficits, but the, the we had the highest real, meaning inflation adjusted, median household income on record in 2019, and the lowest poverty rate on record in 2019. And that was across many different demographics. And that was just bringing about more economic growth, Hmm. um, where growth can really do it. Now, one thing that I do have a little bit of issue with is some people will say, we'll just grow out of our debt and our deficits and everything else. I think that that's overblown. 
when you have economic growth, you'll have more people working, you'll have more taxes. But the problem is, is that spending keeps growing at a faster rate. I mean, you have to go back to uh, one of my favorite presidents, Calvin Coolidge, uh, back during the 1920s. And really, Harding started it, passed away. Coolidge came in and continued it. But their whole approach was to really cutting government spending. And even inflation-adjusted terms, if you look at that period from 1920, 1928, the actual budget in inflation-adjusted terms didn't grow at all over that whole period. And so they ran surpluses and everything else as they were cutting taxes, but they were also cutting government spending. And I think that's it's so important that we missed under John F. Kennedy with his tax cuts during the 1960s. We missed under the Reagan administration of the 1980s, under the President George W. Bush's administration, and then under the Trump administration. Now, these also go to the Congress and how much their spending is, but all these things you know, really come together. And so I think where we have an issue here is how do we start to educate the public about what, really what the nuance is and where we can come in and make big reforms because we, we really need to, kind of drilling home to your point, if we don't make these key reforms, what's going to happen in the future? It won't matter just about growth. It will matter about how many people are in poverty and everything else. And so it's not the cure-all, Doug, but there is a lot of benefits associated with growth. And, and one thing I would add just real quick is that Growth also helps us to overcome any of our environmental issues. Growth helps us to have a, a situation where you can reduce carbon emissions if that's something that you're really concerned about, right? Because you have new innovations and new technologies that come out from that growth. Whereas if you don't have that, you're not going to have the same sort of issues that we had before. So what's the Texas Public Policy Foundation doing right now? What are some of the things that you're working on currently? Maybe forthcoming papers, if you're able to share any of that. And then also tell our audience where they can find you and what Texas Policy Institute, uh, Foundation is doing. Yeah, so I'll start there first, just so don't forget. But Texas Public Policy Foundation, we're at texaspolicy.com. We're on Twitter and other social media, at TBPF on, on Twitter. Um, you can find me, Vance Ginn, at Vance Ginn on Twitter. And you can find all of my other work on there. We also have a commentary website called thecanononline.com. Uh, where all of our commentaries are posted. They're also posted on texaspolicy.com. We've been trying to reach people in different ways through our own commentary website when many of the traditional media aren't running that more free market-oriented op-eds. <laughs> and we said, you know what? We, we're just going to create our own. And um, it's been very successful for the last couple of years that we've had that in place. But you know, TPF, we cover a number of different areas. We're the largest state-based think tank in the nation. As you might expect, we're Texas. We have more than 100 employees at TBPF, we've been around since 1989. We were founded on school choice and really tort reform. And we were able to get medical tort reform and passed in the early 2000s. School choice is a big one that we're still advocating for. Unfortunately, that's just something that we haven't been able to get done. I'm hopeful that we can do it this next session in 2023. But it's still an uphill battle with a lot of the urban versus rural divide and things of that nature. But um, it's something that we're very passionate about here. But we also cover things like on healthcare policy, making sure not to expand Medicaid in, in the state and noting that coverage doesn't equal quality, timely care. And that's really something that's important. Breaking barriers in the energy and environmental space to where we're not just looking at a reliable source of energy that government's propping up like solar and wind energy, but thinking about a across the board where we have a, an approach that isn't going to pick winners and losers, but let's the marketplace to decide. And that's really, I think, a lot of what we try to do here is get people freedom that's going to work best for them. 
And that is ultimately what's going to improve not only their lives, but the lives around them. And I think that was so important, not only from the teachings of Jesus, right? To help your neighbor, like I mentioned earlier. But I think if you even look at some of the economists that were back, not saying they should be compared with Jesus, but just the writings that are out there, going back to Adam Smith, right? And the, and the invisible hand and Milton Friedman and Hayek and all these others that talked about the knowledge problem that government has. We can't let government be the first resort to the answer for our problems. Because if we do, we will always have the wrong solutions and ultimately worse problems. It becomes more of a micro level of connecting with people, connecting with civil society and strengthening those types of institutions such that government is more of a referee within the rules of the game that are put in place instead of coming in and trying to be a player in that game. And I think from looking at that from a uh, a libertarian Christian perspective, I think it's so important within this apparatus that we're in and trying to let people prosper moving forward. So we've got a lot of work to do, but I'm thankful for the work that we're doing, the work that others are doing, the work that y'all are doing there at LCI. I think we've really got a good place to be moving in a good direction to let people prosper. Well, yeah, I think it takes every effort that we can to communicate a free society. And I agree, let people prosper. Vance, thanks for being with us on this episode. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.